Ken and Carol Duvall have been traveling by motorcycle for 17 years, continually for the last 13. They ride two up on an old R80GS. They don't blog, they don't Instagram, but according to them, the internet makes their travel much more fun. Now, we had Ken and Carol on about uh, four years ago. So today we're going to catch up a bit on their travels with some great stories, but as well, we're going to dig into their renowned packing style. Now, you see, uh, I think it was the last episode of Raw that we did with Shirley Hardy Ricks mentioned about Carol. She said that Carol is the most amazing packer there is, and she is. The organization is incredible. So we're going to try to pick up some tips because after this many years of riding two up continuously, you have to learn how to pack and you certainly get efficient and they have. And I think some of these tips will definitely help you with your travels, whether it's for a couple of days, a day, or a couple of years. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. This is one of those stories that starts off a long, long time ago. A motorcyclist met a traveler. Him on a bike, her with the wanderlust. She jumped on the back of his bike and the combination worked. Two people exploring the world on two wheels. Not just an outing for a few months. Ken and Carol Duvall have made travel by motorcycle a lifestyle that according to Ken, is even cheaper than staying at home. In the space of an hour, while we set up our camp and prepared for dinner and everything like that, we had something like six varieties of biting insects attacked us. <laughs> wow. And we looked them up and we covered six of the seven. It was just crazy. <laughs> Big biting flies were the worst ones. <laughs> well, well and, and, and before we get going here, I'll just throw in that Ontario, just trying to one-up you here. But with Ontario, what happens is you, you have the springtime. When springtime sc- starts, you get the black yeah. flies. The black flies are intense. When the yeah. black flies go, the mosquitoes come out. When the mosquitoes go, then you get deer flies <laughs> and horse flies. And when the deer flies and horse flies go, well, you get winter. Oh. <laughs> oh, then no. the cycle starts again. <laughs> oh, oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, that's cruel. That's so cruel. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, well, no. Let's, let's, get, let's get going let's here. Let's get serious. Let's, oh, get, this is work. let's get serious. Put on our... Ken and Carol Duval here uh, from Australia. We're stuck in Brisbane now because of COVID and just waiting it out. Um, Carol Duval. So, yes, I'm the other half of uh, with Ken. I'm sitting on the bike behind him. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, so, so, no, not now. Right, not no. now, unfortunately. Uh, because of COVID, we returned home and put our travels on hold. Uh, but hopefully, we will be able to continue very soon. 
Ken and Carol, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, thank it's you. It's been a while. Thank you very much, Jim. It's been a while. And you know what's funny, Ken, is when you said, you know, we're, we're from Australia, I, I sort of tilted my head a little bit. And I'm thinking, are, are you really from Australia? Yes. Why did you say that? Well, well because you, you, you're traveling all the time. Well, oh. yes. I want to tell you something. The bike in its lifetime, we bought it in 1988. Of that time, we have owned the bike 17 of those years has been overseas. Wow. Because when the bike goes overseas, it doesn't come home until we've actually finished the trip completely. You guys met in what, 1983 or 85? Yeah, 83. 83, yes. Yes, yes. 83. And Ken, you were the motorcyclist. Carol, you were the traveler. That's correct, yes. Yes, so I just gotten back from a a trip backpacking overseas with a friend from school. And then I met Ken, and um, the day after we met, we went out to the motorcycle races. So I, went, I hopped on the bike my first time, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> you, you, it was just a good mix. Yes, I think so. Yeah, quite strange, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, so, And I actually got up the other morning and I said, thank you for introducing me to the world. I would never have gone if it hadn't have been for you. Mm. But but when you guys got together, you were planning a trip around Australia. That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So, you know, that was my dream. I said I was quite comfortable in Australia. And in that loop, Carol said, we should go, go to New Zealand as well because it's so cheap to fly there, you know. I said, what about the bike? He said, well, can't you put it, take it with us? And we did. We took put on a plane. Our first overseas jaunt was 85. We had with to, the bike. We had to apply for a Carnet de Passage. Yeah, Carnet de Passage. Yeah. So, so that was our first, uh, you know, had no. to had to get one of those. You had to get a passport. Had to get a passport. Never even had a passport before. First time. So it was interesting, yeah. So, And it's just been nonstop then since our whole life has been, well, let's, let's get out of here. Let's go traveling. You mentioned the bike. You said the bike the way you said it. Um, that's the Honda CX650? That was the one. That was the one I started all on. And uh, when we started thinking about travel overseas, the research indicated that this bike was not a popular bike overseas. Parts were almost non-existent. So the crucial thing is you've got to have access to parts. You will need them. And I said we have to find a bike that could, you know, is universally acceptable and parts are readily available. And we ended up with the ADGS with the Paris Dakar tank. And you still have that now? We still have it, yes. It's that, our only bike. It's our only bike. That's it. That's about, but now it's funny because you said about parts because I think you were not far out on your first trip when you had valve issues. Oh, yes, yes. We had to, had a full uh, valve rebuild in the USA in, in the first few months. Uh, and it was a bad rebuild and they broke again a couple of times. And in the end, I had to replace barrels and pistons and heads and things like that. So... But I've turned into a quite the mechanic, uh, and now uh, we're probably on our third or fourth rebuild. I have new barrels and pistons on the bike uh, that was installed in the USA. We have in excess of 100,000 Ks on this engine, and it is running like a bird. Wow. So, I mean, that's one of the great things about sticking with one bike for so many years is that you learn the thing inside out. If, if you're mechanically inclined in the least bit, you will learn the thing inside out. You'll be forced to by your breakdowns. Um, and the other thing with this is it's a fairly simple bike. Oh, very simple. And also 
the accessible parts around the world. I have contacts in nearly every country that can actually get parts to me, which is just an internet call. Let's do this. Mm. You know? So it makes it very, very easy. Well, as much as the um, the simplicity of the of the bike makes it easy to work on, now that it's getting old, I, I would think that you would have some sort of issue with getting parts. No. It's, yeah. it's even better now. There are stockpiles, private stockpiles of bits and pieces, uh, aftermarket stuff that is coming onto the market now because genuine has been stopped, that they have stopped making genuine bits. You can actually get aftermarket stuff. It is a following, you know. It's very, very weird. There's that many of those bikes. Yeah, we've been told. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of people are starting to collect, collect them uh, that, and that restore bike them. from that era and restore them or make them into what's they say cafe races Racism. and different things. So they're looking for more parts, and a lot of people maybe that have been hoarding the parts for a long time, are deciding to okay, I'm not getting any younger. I better sell these off. So. Uh, you know, a lot more are coming out on the market, I guess. Yes. Mm. As we, we sort of mentioned, we had you on the show, um, I think it was in, in 2016. I'm going to put a link to that episode in the show notes so that people can listen to that and, yes. uh, and hear your story there. So I won't go over your whole story again, but I do want to talk a little bit about the, um, the years on the road here, because to really, you know, to get your head around this, um, why don't you sort of try and encapsulate at least that um, first and second round the world trip, um, the dates, et cetera. Okay. So the first round the world, we left in um, September. March. March. Oh, sorry, March 1997 and returned in June, June 2001. And that was through uh, North, and North America, a um, little bit of Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, and then over through uh, UK, Europe. Uh, west coast, uh, sorry, east coast of Africa, and then we flew from uh, Durban and Durban and South Africa back up to uh, Athens in Greece, and then we went overland home through Asia, and arrived back in Darwin, and then rode from Darwin to Brisbane. Uh, then we were home for about six years, and we then sold everything, and took off in September uh, two thousand and seven. Uh, first stop was uh, Santiago in Chile, and we had three years in South America, uh, four and a half throughout North America and Central America, and then we flew from um, Vancouver across to Seoul in South Korea, and we went around South Korea, Japan, across Russia and Mongolia to Europe, Europe and the UK, and for the last couple of years we've been, uh, what, four years, five years, been in um, – through uh, throughout Europe and UK, and then uh, this year we started in Africa, West Africa, West Africa, where we hadn't been before. So we we only got as far as Benin when the um, uh, borders started closing, and yeah, we coronavirus decided. broke out. So we decided it was best to get out of Africa while we could because we heard that flights might stop, airports would close, and we flew back to um, the UK hoping that we could just sit it out for a couple of months and everyone would get back to normal and we'd be able to travel again in other parts. But, of course, you know, that, the, that The eternal happen. optimist didn't work this time. Um, we were hoping that it would reopen. Maybe uh, a cocktail of drugs could be found to, you know, hold it at bay for a little while, but no, it didn't happen. So we had a window that we should have left the UK before the end of May to give us a, a window to get across Asia back to Australia in a, say, 12-, 18-month lifespan, and it didn't happen. So early June, we said it's time. We have to bail. 
and we'll come back next year and see if we can resume the journey and hope that the borders reopen. You know, and I think there's there's a number, quite a number of travelers that did the same thing. I mean, and I think part yes. of it really is that we've never experienced anything like this before. None of us have. We, we have never, never. Yeah. never. So, I mean, Very you good. think how long could it possibly last? Yes. 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 I mean, they had the Spanish flu, you yeah. know, uh, but this is, is so much worse. Well, yes. yeah, and we had SARS and, and uh, yeah. the, the avian flu and whatnot. I mean, it, it seemed like it was a big deal, but it really wasn't at the same time. I'm, I mean, I can yeah. remember dealing with that um, when we were in tourism and, and it really affected uh, bookings. And But our year went off. I mean, it didn't go off as well as what it should have, but it, the year went off. It wasn't like this. It wasn't a total yeah. shut. There was no shutdowns, as you know. No. No, this is uh, just unheard extraordinary, of. Extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, at the beginning of the year or, or, or when we sort of December last year, we never thought we'd be in this uh, predicament. Predicament, That's mm-hmm. for sure. So how, how many years in total have you guys been traveling then? So it would be, we're coming up to 17, yeah. 17. In this, in this trip? Or in this trip oh, will no, be 13, in this trip, trip and four in the other one. Yes, yeah. that's correct, right. yes. So, so I guess but, 13 since you you sort of hit the road permanently. Yes, yeah. yes. Right, now, Ken, that's why I said to you, you know, that's why I re- you tilted my head when you said you're from Australia. How can you say you're from Australia when you're, you're kind of from the world at this point? Oh, yeah. So in, in that time, yeah, I, it's been very different. Um, we we're at the time of our lives where our family uh, was getting on a bit. Uh, in this last few years, uh, from 2011 onwards, at last six, uh, I buried my brother. He passed away from leukemia. Carol's mum and dad passed away. So we've had to come back to Australia and spend time with family to go through this period. But now we've Carol only has siblings left. So I have no family left. Uh, so now we have this degree of freedom, so to speak, um, and we can continue. But then COVID came along and said, no, 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 you can't do it again. Mm. So it's just what we do. We just roll along. Because the first trip, we never came home. That's right. We were away for the four, the full four, four years. Four years. Mm. But yeah, this trip. I mean, the first few years we didn't come home. Uh, but after that, because of like say family issues, we had to come home for a few months every year. Um, but of course, and then um, after my mum passed away uh, last year, we we thought, okay, well. Well, now we can continue on and, and stay out longer and we'll get our trip finished because we, we do have an end point. We can see an end point coming up in the next couple of years. So we thought we'd get our Africa and, and overland through Asia out of the way and then we'd come home. So, uh, But, of course, yes, that didn't, that didn't happen. Yeah, so it's definitely a spanner in the works, that's for sure. Well, I know that a lot of people listening to this, what's going to pop into their head is how can you afford to do that? Yeah, I'm a pensioner. That's it. A self-funded, a self-funded re- retiree. Well, yeah, we did sell our house. We sold a house. Uh, mm. You know, we had two cars, a furniture. We sold all that, uh, and then we put it in our retirement fund or Ken's retirement fund because he was closer to um, retirement age. And then once he turned sixty, sixty, yeah, well, fifty-five. Yeah, I could start drawing. Drawing from so it's his private fund. My private fund. Mm-hmm. I finance my retirement. Traveling on the road for us is way cheaper than living in a permanent residence. Way, way cheaper. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. The the crusher is obviously uh, visas and things like that. But you know, just rolling around a country in fine fine weather, we can camp, 
uh, cheap hard roof accommodation. It's cook our food. Cook our own food. You know, we still cook our own you know, food so and things like that. It's just, it is definitely way cheaper. But you don't so, have the maintenance overheads. You don't no. have the electricity, the um, land taxes and yeah. all this other things that comes mm. with uh, yeah. with owning a house. Yeah. So You, you said your, your personal re- retirement fund. Is this like your bank account, you mean, or is this a, a fund? Well, in Australia, we have a structure. Uh, we are committed that when we're earning wages uh, that we have to uh, provide uh, funds direct to a superannuation fund. And uh, the earliest you can turn that into a pension fund, whereas you draw a monthly income or a six-monthly income from it, is 55. So between 55 and 60, I have to still pay taxes on that because I've retired too early. But once I turn 60, I don't pay taxes on those drawings. So that money has to last until I die, so to speak, you know. Um I probably couldn't live in Australia uh, with what we draw while we're traveling. Oh, wow. So, that's that's an interesting so, thought, isn't it? it oh, Australia is very expensive. expensive. So, Even coming back now compared to when we were here in May last year, yeah. I can just see the increase in the prices everywhere. You know, so, we go to the buy food and the food is just so, so expensive. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it, you know. So. Um, it's a, well, we just have to roll with it. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing we can do about it. Australia will always be home, you know, but there is still the wanderlusts, you know. I still want to see a few countries. Well, well Carol, you mentioned endpoint there, something about you can see an endpoint. And I was going to ask you, what happens when the bike gets too old and the bike no longer wants to travel? <laughs> what are you guys going to well, do? I think it might be the other. <laughs> It'll be my body first. <laughs> well, I, I was trying to be polite. No, 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 no. no. I could, I could take it all. I'd be called everything. Well, <laughs> at the moment, Touchwood, the the bike is is still it's going going well, well and yeah. hopefully can do another few years. Yeah. Uh, our problem is travel insurance uh, for riding a motorcycle mm. overseas. So at the moment, travel insurance that we can find for that that we can afford uh, stops when uh, Ken turns seventy. And at the moment, you're sixty seven. Sixty seven. Yeah, 67. Oh, okay. I'm Don't sound too old. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I see that. Then you can see the end point there. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd even, like to be home by the time I'm 70. You yeah. Know? I said, I, I don't want to pay five grand a year for travel insurance. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you do know? you do, though, when you come home? You, you said Australia the, is expensive and I mean the food and, and everything is, is so well, pricey. We'll, we'll have to set up a house again. And be yes, normal. we'll just have to very, very um, frugal. Yeah, frugal. And then also... <laughs> and, uh, we plan to have an open house, so uh, to pay back to the world what they gave to us while we were travelling. Um, and actually the six years between our two journeys, we also had an open house then. Yeah, now I remember so, you saying that. I remember you saying that when you came back from that round-the-world trip, or that first trip rather, that you did, yeah. you you were sort of, um, you weren't pleased necessarily about having to, to stop travelling. I mean, you guys both, yeah. you know, really felt was, like you... You wanted to keep going, and and part of the way you got through that of, of of you know saving money, paying off your debts, et cetera, was having travelers come and stay at your house. So, what's it going to feel like now when you go back? The invitation is out there. Yeah, well, we we hope to do the same, and we yeah. have to have uh, lots of travelers come by. And we always said the next, but if you can't travel, the next best thing is having travels come travelers come and stay with you. Yeah. So. Uh, we hope that uh, that'll happen again. Yeah. So, and also, like I say, Ken said, like it's nice to be able to pay it back. You know, uh, 
so many people have taken us in and, and, and offered us a roof over the head and food and everything like that. So it would be nice just to do the same for other people. Mm. Our unsung sponsors, so to speak. Yeah. Can, can you, you once said um, to me, it took uh, 10 years of procrastination and six months of preparation. Maybe this is something you've told many people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, we talked about it for 10 years. Uh, we were in a BMW club in, uh, in Brisbane here and we told him, we said, we're going to go overseas one day. We're prepping the bike. The bike was ready in the first couple of years. And we just did a few trips around the country and everything like that. And then one day we just woke up and said, you know, if we don't go soon, we'll never go. So then we just said, okay, let's start this. I think the first thing we did, we uh, got a train into the city and we went to the flight centre and booked a flight to San Francisco and that was it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we said we have to go. And then we we didn't have to pay for the ticket. They sent us a letter in January and we were flying in March. If you do not pay for this ticket now, you have lost it. So once that money had been paid, that was it. We had to go. You're committed. You're committed, mm. absolutely committed, you but know. The reason why we procrastinated for that long was we, we always thought we needed more money mm. to travel, you know. So we left with really not a lot of money. Mm. And I think after seven months in the traveling mm. around North America, we actually had no money left. So we did have a ticket. Part of that ticket that we booked was on to the UK from, from um, Florida. So when we got to the UK, we had an ancestry visa, which allowed us to work and live for four years. So at the time we weren't over there, it was sort of October, November. So it was getting into winter and winter is very difficult to travel anyway in, in UK Europe because of the cold weather. So we said, okay, well, how about we work over the winter and we save a little bit of money so we can travel the summer. So that's what we did. So we worked in in a bar, in a pub, Ran a pub at- in, in London. Mm-hmm. And we did that for until May, from yep. December to May, mm. I think it was. And then we took off traveling in the summer again. And then we had to do the same thing the next winter. Uh, we got another job and that financed the next summer. Mm. How old were you so, guys in, in that time period, roughly? Uh, I think I was about 36, 37. Yeah, I was probably nine years yeah. older. Yeah, and because we got home when I was 40. Yeah. Yeah, and Ken's nine years older than me. So I would have been nearly 50. So how did that feel when you when you run out of money? Was that not sort of a panic feeling at that point? No, 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 no. no. So we had uh, credit cards. We could have got home on those if we really had to. Well, we did did in the end. (laughs) Yeah, we did in the end. But the distressing part was probably Carol's family who said, well, when are you coming home? Because as we left the airport, our very good friends uh, who lived just around the corner for us came out and said goodbye, took some photos, and this is film days, not digital, and Jane wrote on the back of a photograph in pencil saying, saying goodbye to these guys, hard to believe we're not going to see them for 18 months. We got home four years, two months later. Yeah. Wow. So the story was we were going to be away 18 months. So, and how about this time when you when you hit the road, you know, the trip that you're on now, the 13 years, was it open-ended at that point? You say goodbye to everybody and say, basically, well, we this get, is it? It was a guesstimate. We would say we'd probably be home in seven. Yeah, we thought seven. We thought one year South America, one year North America, uh, probably one or two years through Europe and the UK and, and then possibly Africa, Asia, another year or two, and then we'd be home. But, of course, you know, we three years in South America. <laughs> 
So visas and weather dictate our travel plans. Now you you don't um you don't do well, I guess you you post on social media but you don't have a website. No, no. no. So you don't have a website. No. You're not um you're not on Instagram. You're not. Uh, you, you're not no. doing no. that stuff. You're not sharing your adventure. I guess you could say you're you're just living well, your adventure. Well, yes, because it does take a lot of time to post all that stuff on social media. I mean, I have a hard enough time keeping up with posting stuff on Facebook and keeping people up to date. So because we're out. We're traveling all day and then by the time you get into either camping or your accommodation and then you've got to make food or look for food and then, yeah. then you're planning where you're going or what you're going to see yeah. and then it's time to go to bed, you know. And Do you think that's and, selfish, uh, Jim? <laughs> do, do I think it's selfish? No, I think it's darn good life planning. <laughs> oh, you're out, out, out enjoying the company of other, other people, local yeah. people or other travelers, whatever it might be at the place. So rather than being locked in your room and having to be a slave to the computer, we'd rather be out there enjoying it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's why we get so far behind with posting on Facebook and things yeah. like that. And I think, well, you know. So not yeah no uh, no web page. Uh, well, actually, I, I'm going somewhere with this because you know. So obviously, you're you're not into you know totally into social media, but um, you have said, and I think this was Ken again, that the internet's taken a lot of the challenge out of riding, but then it's definitely more fun because of it. Definitely, definitely, it's definitely more fun. It's um, uh, planning ahead, and then we contact people who have been in front of us. People come in the opposite direction and we meet up. The number of people we've met up because we've been able to contact them. Is there anyone in so-and-so? And also West Africa was – we were cruising through West Africa because of all the access to information. Now, the people who didn't access this information, they really struggled and they're probably still struggling now because the vision is that we just roll up to a border, get a visa and then roll through, you know. But West Africa is not like this. It is planning. There's planning, a little planning. bit planning ahead, especially with the visas. You know, so, you can't always get a visa at the border. And access to countries is different to where you are from. So it was really quite a challenge. And everyone said, be aware that this is a very challenging country. So oh, continent. Con- challenging continent. Mm. So as it was. Yeah. But to the point where we actually had to turn around, we were rolling. It was sweet as. You know, you and know, a lot so. of people who are, are not into social media will sort of poo-poo the whole thing and say, you know, I have no use yeah. for it. Um, I want to cut a, you know, I, I want nothing to do with it basically while they're traveling around. And you're doing sort of the opposite. You're you're ignoring the social media, so to speak, but you're using yeah. it as a tool, as a travel tool. And like you're saying, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it, it's making it more fun for you. And That's also right. I have information to give to other people who maybe say, listen, I'd be very careful going here. I'd probably use this one. And this particular embassy is not a helpful one. Use this one here because the person there is really, really nice, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's all about personalities in places that assisted us and places that give us a lot of grief. I mean, we took on some borders in Africa that everyone said, please don't do this border. It is really aggressive. Well, we took it on. You know, this is one of the ones in Africa. And uh, what was it? Uh, uh, it's Mar- Mauritania to Senegal. Mar- Mauritania to Senegal. And it was pretty, particularly bad, you know. We can probably cope with that because we've had a lot of experience at borders, you know, and we came in quite geared for it. Um, they never got to us. 
You know, we actually handled it quite well. Uh, but most other people, they struggle with it because it's very, very uh, aggressive. What do, you, what do you mean? Uh, describe what it's like. Um, There's a well, lot of lot of corruption at the border. A lot of touts, and, a lot of corrupt touts. Yeah, the touts can be very aggressive. Aggressive, you know. So uh, we had to give back as much we as we were given. Uh, and one guy called me rude, and I said, "You have surrounded my bike with five touts yelling at me. You tell me who was being rude." And he looked at me and looked at these guys yelling at us, and he walked away. Because he realised how bad it was, you know. Um, and then when we got inside, we work as a team, you know, Carol and I. And Carol took on one of the touts. Uh, he did get at us to a point and I dressed him down because of it because he kept pleading poor all the time. And then he opened his mouth. He had the greatest metal mouth I've ever seen. Yeah. Orthodontic work. This is seriously expensive. You know, and I said, you told me you had no money. How can you afford orthodontic work? <laughs> and he looked at me and says, oh, it's cheap here. I said, it's cheap nowhere. Orthodontic work is very, very expensive, you know, mm -hmm. and he was a little bit embarrassed then. I said, I can't afford it, you know. So, but it was, you know, it was challenging. The other side, Senegal, everyone said, oh, Senegal was bad too. Oh, we, we had, just breezed through, not yeah. a problem at all. So it was. We, we were in and out so quick, we were just we were like. quite shocked. Have we know? finished? <laughs> so, but anyway, it was one of those things. After that, we had no problems at all. We just, you know, um, we have time and I don't put any pressure on uh, border people about, you know, we need to get out of here quickly. I sit down, I fold my arms, I almost fall asleep and I watch the entertainment, you know. Uh, I think it was coming into Côte de Devoir. I think we had six officers handling our paperwork and everyone pulled out their cell phones and took photographs of our visa and our passports. So this is because they're not, not on the computer system there, so they have to keep records, uh, keep records and, and send the stuff back to the capital, I guess. Yes. And they use their uh, cell phones for that. Yeah. So it took, it took some hours, you know, but mm -hmm. we just sat there and never complained, you know. They offered us seats because we're old people. We get a lot of respect because we're old. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and also uh, Ghana, uh, we got stopped so many times by the police and it was just, just they just, wanted, along they the just want to talk to us. They just want to talk to us, you know, and it was so hot. Oh. Goodness me, it was so hot. And I said, oh, goodness me, here's another one. So we got to the stage where we would hide behind a lorry, a truck, right, tuck right in the knee so they didn't see us before we went to the <laughs> – but we still got caught. We still got caught, you know. So Why, why uh, tackle that border, though, if it was so bad? Well, um, there was a, uh, a rough track to get to the other border, right, and everyone said, oh, it was really tough, really, really tough. And I said, oh, look, you know, do I do I attack this tough border? We're two up. And sand is not our friend. So I said, Carol will have to walk, you know, if we get to a big, you know, if we had two or three Ks of really deep sand, Carol may have to walk. And I said, oh, look, let's just go to the other one and see how we can do it. He said, and we said, it's we have to prime ourselves. They said, they're going to be aggressive. We have heard this terrible horror it's story. It's the Rosso border. The Rosso border. The, the, the aggressive one. And Diama yeah. is the, the one most travellers do now. Yeah. It has the dirt section mm. track that you have to get take to take 
to get there. I kid you not, we would have to have been probably seven or 800 metres from the actual border and the touts came at us and they were running at us, screaming at us, you know, you need to use me to get through the border. You will not be able to do this, you know. And I said, and I just point to the little flags on their screen, said, see all these borders? And they look at the, you have been a lot of places. I said, yes, we have never used helper. Oh, oh, you will, not, you will need a helper here. No, I don't. No, I don't need a helper. You know, it's just, oh, man, oh, man. The, the one then, you said started to get to you, did you hire him? No. No, we just. He, he walked away. He walked away. Mm. And yeah. another one just sort of attached ourselves to him, but he, he wasn't any he's help. Kid, he he was just a kid and he was chatting to us. Yeah. But we more or less did our own thing mm. because I had I had a list of where we needed to go. Mm. When but we it, got it to the gates. It just took a long time yeah. on, that's on the Mauritanian side of the border. When we got to the gates, a guy opened the gate. He says, give me your passports. I said, I'm sorry, who are you? And he said, I am an official. And I said, you are not in uniform. Can I see your papers? And he pulled out a laminated card, which was really poorly made. And I says, surely you can have a better document than that. It's your identification. And he looked at me and he walked away. <laughs> he was fake. <laughs> he was going to take my passports. <laughs> and and oh. that's some of the lessons that you've learned over the years. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was, look, we, tr- we were never rude. We were never rude. We just said, hey, you know, and I got loud because you, they just don't hear you, you know. So, But the, 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 the guys, the young guys, they're all way bigger than me. We were the only Caucasians at the border, you know. Mm. So, and I often wondered as we parked amongst the other local people waiting to cross the river into Senegal, they looked at how these young people attacked us. They must have felt sympathy for us because – no one else was approached. Uh, Only us. It was just we were just bombarded with people. So it was entertaining. <laughs> we're going to take just a quick break and be right back. Stick around. We've got a lot more coming up. And, and not too far down the road, we're going to be talking about packing tips. Stay with us. Well, it's been really hot here. I've seen a lot of bikes on the road, but I'll tell you, I've been surprised at the number of riders that I see hugging the curb side of the road, you know, as if trying to stay out of traffic. Now, if a vehicle is pulling out in front of you, basically from a side road or, or a driveway or something, and you're hugging the curb, you're just far less visible to that rider or driver that's coming out than you are if you're near the center of the road. Think about the angle. If you were the vehicle pulling out of a driveway and you look toward traffic, you're going to spot a rider that's near the center line before you're going to see the rider next to the curb. Think about that angle. And that split second or that fraction of of a moment can make all the difference in what happens next. Because being seen on the road as a motorcyclist is something that you need to work at. It's just too easy to miss a bike on the road. And another way that you can make sure that you're seen is by illuminating your bike with some high quality lighting from Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops is a family owned U.S. company, family riders, I might add that make a full range of auxiliary lighting for motorcycles, ATVs, snowmobiles, even bicycles, and more. They have plug-and-play kits for the new CAN bus style bikes. They have 
awesome LED headlight conversion kits, plug and play, maybe I should say plug and ride, and a lot more when it comes to lighting. Their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Make sure you mention to them that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, whether you're emailing, phoning, whatever it is, just throw in there. You heard them here. We would appreciate it. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. You know, changing your foot pegs takes about the same skill as changing your oil. But when you change your oil, well, it's kind of anticlimactic. I mean, nothing really changes except your wallet's a little bit lighter. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Definitely change your oil at specified intervals. But changing your foot pegs to IMS foot pegs, well, that's going to have you grinning from ear to ear. Wider platform, better grip, more leverage, better control. And when your buddy asks why you're doing so much better in the rough stuff now, well, you could always claim that you just did a little more training. Or maybe you could tell them about the IMS foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full range of amazing foot pegs for us adventure riders. Made in the USA, warranted for life. IMSproducts.com. And throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Your uh, your camping style is is a mixture of accommodations and ca- your sorry not your camping yeah. style. I was giving away the, the answer there. Your travel style is uh, a combination of camping and accommodations. Yes. That's always, correct. Yes. Always, yes. How much? Always. How much of each? Uh, it depends on the weather and the country. Yes. So uh, Africa, we I don't think we put the tent up. No, we hadn't put the tent up. Um, we met some guys, uh, Bonamata cyclists had been free camping and even camping in campgrounds. They had been uh, attempted break-ins to the tent while they were in it. Mm. So things are not really that secure yeah. in West Africa. It's very sad. So we tended to go for the hard roof, secure accommodation. Uh, Airbnb, uh, there are places like Elephant's Nest, um, What's the other one there? Oh. Uh, Sleeping Camel. Yeah. And they're generally run by Westerners with a lot of uh, national uh, staff. Uh, Local uh, staff, yeah. Fairly secure compounds um, and they work very, very well. Uh, you meet a lot of other travellers going both directions. Uh, so we made a, met a lot of friends and made a lot of friends there. We are still in contact with. So, which is you know, a great way to meet people as well. Plus, the the local people working there, very very helpful in saying, "Listen, you need to go here. This is a great place to go." That kind of thing. Whether they're making money at this, I have no idea. But it was very very comforting to have someone on your side in these countries. Uh, we went into Mali. Um, we were not insured there. Our country, uh, uh, the travel insurance doesn't cover you in Mali. But uh, it was a, pl- we, a planned route because there were some border issues with other countries. So it was interesting. And, and plus more difficult roads in going through um, some of the yeah, other countries. Guinea and Sierra Leone. Uh, motorcyclists and four-wheel drivers preceding us had hit the wet season. It was a very late wet this year and they got caught in a lot of mud. Um, and I said, well, we don't need to do this. Uh, we can do the, the paved roads. Um, and then we were the, looking at the paved roads. It says loosely. That's yeah, there's that's, more potholes in them than there is pavement. <laughs> so, but uh, you develop riding skills like you would not believe. <laughs> what's so, a, what's sort of a day in the life like for, for you guys, or a week in the life, or or a month in the life? You know, of, of traveling the so, way you're doing it. Well, we like to sort of travel one day, and then if we get to a spot, you know, 
spend a couple of days there, then we travel another day, another day and then spend a couple of days. Mm-hmm. That's generally what we like yeah. to do. Some days uh, could be 200 kilometres long, some 400 kilometres long, some 100 long. We don't know uh, what the day will come. We may get to a town at midday and say, this is looking like a really nice place. Let's hang here for a day or two. And we do. So unless we have border restrictions like visa timetables, um, where we are on a bit of a mission. Um, it was just difficult in Africa to try and juggle the seasons. We were fearful we were going to hit the Congo in the wet season and it is very, very muddy down there. So, And then an Ebola outbreak occurred in um, eastern Congo when we were there, but they got on top of it fairly quickly, which was great. So... And we were quite fearful they would close the borders over that. Corona came to West Africa from Europe. Tourists were bringing in at the airports. Or or return uh, people that lived or worked in those countries that had been up to either for work or whatever, up to Europe Mm. or China even. Plus China has a big population working there as well. well. So return to the countries. But we were watching uh, Nigeria. I think it was brought in to Nigeria uh, by a guy from Italy, you know, and it just started flying there. I think Senegal, it was a guy from France, you know, he just flew in and he just started roaming around, you know, and there was literally no controls. They never realised the seriousness of the situation. And the medical facilities in Africa really, I don't think, are going to cope. It's really quite quite, you know, so uh, we have Well, it's, if it gets much worse. If it gets there, much yeah. worse, yeah. yeah. So um, there was a little bit of finger pointing as we realised where it had come from. So Caucasians were actually singled out as being the problem because we actually put it down there. That was so, first off. I don't think it's, 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 like, it's like that now. Yeah. Uh, just first off, people were so weary, uh, you know, about, you know, does he? Does that person have it or not? You know, no, they're going to. Did pass- you guys find this for yourselves? No, no, no we because we left just before really all that really started. Really started, yeah. So we met a French girl in Cotonou, um, and who was planning to buy a motorcycle and ride back to France. And uh, she said, oh, "I'm just going to hang here." She said, "I got nothing back in France to go to." And she was there for about two or three weeks that I contacted her from the UK and I said, how are you guys, how are you going? She says, France is putting on a flight, I'm getting out. I said, really? She said, I haven't been out of the, uh, my accommodation for about two weeks because there's a lot of finger pointing going on because I'm white. I said, it's time. And she said, I can't live like this, you know, so she left. So she went back to France. Um, a couple of Spanish guys on bikes. They got as far as Cameroon. We were hanging out together. We met them a couple of times. Uh, they got out of Cameroon on an uh, emergency flight. Their bikes are still in Cameroon. Um, another guy got down as far as was it DRC or was it in the other side? Might have been Kinshasa. Oh, he got down to. Uh yeah, DRC. I think. DRC, yeah. His bike's down there. He, had, he got back to Spain. Um, there's a lot of trucks and four-by-fours just sitting there. All over all over all, Africa. All, all well, over Africa, all east over and the, west. All over the world, yeah, really. It's probably People had to fly out and leave their vehicles. Yeah, so I don't know what the repercussions are going to be when they get back. 
Is there going to be penalties for leaving your vehicle there? Because your vehicle gets a permit for the length of your stay. So that's all expired now, but the vehicles are still there. So how are they going to treat that when the people... You can imagine that in a lot of countries, they're they're just going to slap the fines on. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, some countries are saying, oh, yes, no, they'll be fine. We understand the situation, you know. But, yeah, other ones are going to say, oh, money, money, money. Yeah, yeah. So what did you guys do? You, you managed to get out just before? Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. The we, week, I think the week after we left, the, the airport closed. Yeah. In, in uh, Cotonou. Yeah, Cotonou, yeah. yeah so uh, we have a friend who works for Brussels Airlines who had an office in Cotonou, and we contacted her, and she was saying, you need to get out, you need to get out. Oh, no. And the first border that closed was Angola. But they had no cases, but they could see the writing on the wall. So they said, we're closing. And I said, well, that effectively blocks our journey south. You have to go through Angola. And we were so looking forward to it. But apparently it's a fantastic country after being locked down all those years with civil war. Two days after that, they opened the borders again. So we said, we're good to go. We can do this. On the Monday, I think we went and got our visa for Republic of Congo. For the Republic of Congo. It was a couple of hundred dollars each, US, right? We came out. That night, Angola closed its borders. So and we're thinking, okay, that's all over. We'll have to see how we can get out. And then like two days later, we opened the game. We think, oh, okay, so now we can probably go on. We'll, we'll leave on the weekend. And within that week, other borders closed. You know, people were, I think it was, um, oh, I can't remember which country now, one of them closed and they wouldn't let people in or out. Mm. And so anyone stuck either side of the border was really, really, really stuck. stuck. Yeah. yeah. So so we looked it up on the net and I said, so it'll be three weeks before we get to Angola, minimum, possibly four or five. Right. So I sat down and I looked what the disease had done in the previous three weeks and where had it erupted and expanded to. And how quickly it How quickly it said. In three weeks, we watched this thing, how it erupted around the world and how everyone was closing up shop. I said, Africa is going to do the same in the next three or four weeks. We need to get out of here, you know, and that's where it all started. So Yeah, so we were able to fly the bike with us. It went on the same plane as us uh, and we thought, well, it was easier to get back to the U.K., uh, at that time rather than Australia and we were also hoping that we would be able to continue travelling in other parts. We wouldn't come back to Africa, unfortunately, because of the cost. But we considered, you know, okay, we, later on we'll continue overland through Asia. Home. Mm. Uh, I want to do the stands. But, you know, mm. that's that's what happened. Mm. But we were able to get our bike, which mm. was really good. And when we got back to the UK, I think yeah, we, arrived, we arrived at our friend's place, which were very kind enough to, to say, yes, come stay as long as you like. Mm. Uh, we arrived there on the 16th of March, and I think a couple of days later the UK locked down. Mm, uh, so, uh, you guys have just got back. You just got out of lockdown, as a matter of fact, like two days yeah. ago. Yeah, so... We have uh, we mandatory, have some, a lot mandatory of, quarantine. Yeah. yeah. So you go back so, to Australia and you're and you're forced into mandatory yeah. quarantine for 14 days. Yeah. 14 days, yeah. yes. Yeah. So we were just released on mm. Tuesday. On Tuesday, yeah. <laughs> mm. So you know it wasn't that tough. Uh, I probably we have a different mindset, but everyone complains and everything like that. But you know it's just what we do. You know you you have to do. You have to do yeah. it. So and move along. 
what what happens now as far as your travel plans go? I mean, I, mean, yeah. I, I know we don't have any answers. None of us do. But what are you picturing? Because mm-hmm. what I'm seeing is, you know, you're talking about you can see the end point coming with your travel insurance being mm-hmm. uh, too expensive and maybe four years down the road, uh, three or four yeah. years down the road. So are you starting to rethink things? Well, we have a – my optimistic view is April next year, things have, will have settled down, borders will be open, right? And we can start rolling again. So um, because of the political ramification, China is not being very social at the moment. And our vision of getting through the stands, you know, having a nice roll through the summer uh, summertime in the stands and getting to China, doing that little loop. To Pakistan, to through China Pakistan, to Pakistan. Down to Kunjarab Pass. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. China uh, and the world politics situation, I don't think they'll be giving visas to Australians anytime soon. So we've had to rearrange our route again, which we have worked it out. Uh, it'll be tight, but there are some things we need to see, we want to see, and we will do a loop through the stands, come back down into Iran, Pakistan, India, and then come around the top of the bay and down into Southeast Asia, into Indonesia, Ireland hop over to East Timor, and then jump from East Timor back to Darwin. So that's the vision. Take maybe 12 to 18 months to do this loop um, and we will be back. Uh, Landing in Darwin, I would would love to do another loop around Australia before we go home and dust the bike down and say we've done it. I mean, travel in Australia is no problem. No no, no trouble at all. It's just overseas. Yeah. But if if we get to, say, March and we'll reevaluate the situation and see what, see how the world is looking. So, and if we're not able to travel then at next year, then we'll have to see w- whether we wait another year and that will have to be the limit then, I That'll think. be the limit. You know, we either wait another year or we get the bike sent home. So it's just, we, it's just a complete unknown. We're very optimistic, though. Very. I, I was going to say, are you all? <laughs> have you always been optimistic? And when you said about next uh, next year, everything being open and back to normal again, well, I was hoping it would be May this year we would leave. Mm, right, <laughs> and every, and everyone was saying, "No, Ken, no, 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 no." Oh, you're such a pessimist. Wow. <laughs> hey, anyone, what, what do you guys do for for health issues on the road? I mean. As we get older, uh, we need more things. You know, the, it's the same as the bike as they get the miles rack up. You start to need things. I know you have travel insurance and I know your your policy is to obviously travel with travel insurance. Um, but what do you do with that sort of thing? Like, you know, if you have to sit around somewhere. Oh, well, I get, I, I take a lot of drugs, you know, um, legal drugs. <laughs> no, not recreational um, stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, so, um I generally have a, a little bit of a supply with me, um, but generally in a lot, most of the third world countries, you buy them over the counter. Mm. So that uh, makes it a lot easier. Makes it a lot easier. I mean, in the U, in the UK, we had to get a, a few prescriptions yeah. of, of medication supplied there, so that was a bit of a rigmarole to contact the the doctor surgery and get as, on as a temporary patient. And then they would only give you a month's supply at a time. So then you had to go through all the rigmarole again to get the next month, you know. So, yeah. uh, but at least you could do that. I mean, some countries, uh, you know, they spoke English, so that made it a lot easier. I mean, other countries where you don't speak the language and it's not as easy, that's when you, it's nice to have some local knowledge or, yeah. or someone to assist you and, 
And because uh, you have done that in other countries yeah. where somebody's taking, you know, a local's taking you to their local doctor and explain the situation. And, yeah. And you've been able mm. to see a doctor there and get medication. Yeah. So uh, travel insurance doesn't cover pandemics, mm. nor do they cover pre existing. So that, that side of things, we're on our own. And sometimes I say to Carol, I said, you know what? Travel insurance is a waste of money. And she always says, what if we fall over and break something? Yeah. <laughs> it's more it's more for the motorcycle accident side of things. Side of things, you know? yeah. So. Uh, we're not so worried, We, you know, to, about the luggage or the, you know, things getting room. stolen, things like that. It's more the the accident. If we have an accident, we need to get uh, yeah. flown out somewhere. I mean, if you had to pay those sort of bills, we we just don't have that sort of money. Mm. And you, you've never had that? No. 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 We've had an accident, but we've never had to get flown out or mm. anything like that. So, but the the insurance company at the time mm. we were with were very good for, for that um, that accident mm. that we had. Uh, you guys are, are traveling two up on the R80GS. You're yes. packing for two people on one bike. I, w- I want to get some packing tips here from you guys to see what you've learned because you, you must have it absolutely dialed and surely uh hardy rex uh, on raw um on the last episode she was just saying but you've got to talk to carol because she is the i, I forget what she said i think she might have said professional packer or one of the best packers but, <laughs> but she she spoke highly of your packing skills yeah, oh well yeah. she's a bit ocd about it <laughs> are you talking about carol Yes. Yeah, yes, right. yeah, Carol. Yeah, yeah. She's only, you have yeah. to pack small, pack light, and, and pack, pack tight. tight. <laughs> <laughs> so it's I, I often refer to it as, as kind of like backpacking. If anybody's done any backpacking, um, yeah, it's sort yeah. of like that. Except you don't go to the extremes in my mind of cutting off the handle of the toothbrush to to reduce nah, weight. You don't yeah. go that far. No, but, we had friends that used to cut the tags off their uh, clothing <laughs> and everything like that. It becomes a bit of a game in the end. They said, "Yeah, okay, what can we, what weight can we lose today?" You know. <laughs> And they yeah. did cut the handles off their toothbrushes yeah. and things yeah. like that. You know, I've had people tell me who cut, they cut the maps. They cut their route out of the map and they take only their route. So it's a <laughs> string of paper. And, yeah. and I think that's well, a little extreme. But but you guys have got two people packing on one bike. How do you break that right. down? Yeah. Oh, well, so, the uh, the tank bag is the kitchen. We each have a uh, his and her pannier. So Ken has one side and I have the other. That's all our clothing, electronics. Mostly going yeah, those, yeah. And then the back box is the house, so that has a tent, the sleeping bags, the mats, uh, first aid kit, aluminium stools, stools, and a few little bits and pieces. Bike you know, cover, bike cover, bike pump. Yeah. Um. So, and then I have a little backpack that has uh, the administration, as you could say. Uh, it has uh, some, some paper maps, some paper maps, and some other uh, the external hard drive because I like to keep that separate from everything else. Uh, just a few little bibs and bobs mm. like that. So that's basically how we we we, we are pack. way heavier than what we were on the first journey. I'll give you an idea. We started out with thirty six liter plastic panniers on the first journey. The back box is a sixty liter action packer storage tub that cost twenty dollars at Walmart by rubber made by rubber made. Yeah, I know cost twenty dollars. Yeah, they don't make this size anymore. It's quite depressing. But anyway, it's still surviving. Um, and uh, that's 60 litres, but it's very, very flat. It's not a tall box. Uh, and we keep it fairly low, and I keep the weight in that box around the 10 kilo mark. mark. 
Brian, when he spoke about his box from BMW, the box and the racket was on when he removed it from his bike, weighed 10 kilos, empty. Mm. And the and the box you're talking about, the 60 liter action pack box, that, that probably weighs nothing. I mean, next to it nothing. It weighs about 2.7 or 8 kilos. It's mm-hmm. very, very light. Mm-hmm. So I throw about 10 kilos. It's I'd say about 10 kilos worth of gear in. It's just, I, I, I would never live without it. It's, and it also doubles as our table when we're cooking. So we spread a tablecloth out, we put our stove there, we put our, you know, and it was, we have it down packed. The tank bag opens on the tank of the bike, out comes the cooking gear. So it works very, very fun, very well. The panniers we both pack ourselves, but entirely different. Yeah, Ken, Ken has a compression sack, like a sleeping bag compression sack, which he puts all his clothes in. So that gives him a, a sort of round ball type yeah. um, So it's um, about bag. probably about seven inches round by about 10 inches long. Where I pack, because I take the, the laptop. So I need something. I have little bags. I make all the little bags. So I have different, like all my shirts in one bag, all my underwear in another bag and thermals in another bag, and they slot down, and they're either side of the laptop. It, they're vertically loaded. Yeah, and the, and the laptop slots down in between so it's nice and cushioned and everything like that. So I pack totally different to him. But what I did in the last uh, two years or two or three years, I actually made a penny aligner. So we we have the uh, Kodura bag. It's still floppy enough to fit in little corners and everything like that. And it slots in first and then we pack everything in there. So when we want to we get to a hotel or a room or whatever, we can just pull that bag out and take mm-hmm. it in with us. Mm-hmm. So, so, so to nice break this down, I, I'm, the kitchen in the tank bag, how big is your tank bag? It's, uh, I suppose it'll be about 28 litres. It will expand up to a probably about 34, 35, but it's on the lower setting. Okay, right? so so when you say kitchen, what are we talking? We're talking about a Coleman fuel stove, dual fuel stove, that is we purchased in the good old USA in 1997. So it's, oh. uh, what, that's 33 years, no, 23 year old. Is that right? Yeah, 23 year old. Uh, we refurbished it in the States from Coleman. They have all the bits that cost me about $12. But other than that, I just keep it running. It's, that's It just keeps yeah. going. We have two insulated um, stainless steel uh, mugs. Yeah, which doubles as a wine cup, a coffee cup, a tea cup, a, beer a cup. water cup, a beer <laughs> cup. It does it all. Mm-hmm. Um, we have titanium plates. That's just pure luxury. That's just that's gimmicky farkle. So they, they, they've got a little lip on them, so they're good for a bowl, little bowl or a plate. And then we have a dual metal um, um, pot. cooking pot. One and a half litre. It's aluminium on the outside and stainless on the inside, made by… Uh, Trianga? Trianga. And, Trangia. Uh, Trangia, Trangia that's, that's it. Trangia, yeah. And we've had that… Oh. UK, We've had that 98. since the first trip. Yeah, yeah, 98. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant um, to Bo- cook with and it, and it cleans, nothing sticks to it. It's, it's just, just fantastic. really good bit of kit. And, uh, and then uh, we have another tall pot, stainless steel pot. One and a half litres again where the stove actually fits inside. So it's inside this, it's a billy, mm-hmm. you know. So, and, and so when we pack it, the, the stove will fit inside that pot mm-hmm. and sit in the tank bags so upright. We have a pencil case 
quite small, that has all our cutlery. So, which isn't very much. Um, you know, the can over the pe- potato peeler, uh, a couple of sharp knives, you know, Fork, pretty- two long spoons. Uh, we also have a small, very small pair of tongs, which uh, someone gave us, gave us uh, at the beginning of, of in this trip in 2007. And they have, we thought, oh, we probably won't use these. They have been just so useful. Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, we also have uh, a uh, MSR egg flipper, which mm. is a godsend. It's a little frying pan in MSR. Yeah, yeah. It's an MSR frying pan, and that sits mm. as a lid, more or less like a lid on, on the, the one and a half pot. liter pot. Yeah. So, and in that big pot, we have all our spices mm. and washing up detergent yeah. and, and salt all, and pepper. All this kit is in bags made by Carol. <laughs> nice, the little ditty bags that all go into the the uh, tank bag. Everything has a place, and it's loaded very specifically, and it's tight. And it doesn't move. And we also carry tea and coffee. Tea and coffee. Uh, uh, tin of tuna, minimum. Yeah. Rice, a little bit of rice, Som- a little bit of pasta. Sometimes rice, but yeah, not so much now because they're usually easy to carry, but definitely a tin of tuna. And pasta. Yeah. Spaghetti. Right. The long stuff because it sits in a corner down the bottom. Um, there? Oh, probably about three or four different herbs and spices. Yeah. So, said, yeah. yeah. So, and um. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else it is. Oh, yeah, the uh, Ortlieb plastic tub, the five-litre Ortlieb tub. Foldable tub. The, yep. the collapsible tub. That's one with the, so, the hard sides? Like uh, it's got the the tubes in the top? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, like webbing, fold- webbing handles and it so, makes a square, a little square tub. Yeah. Right, then when you fold it up almost into a triangle and then you can roll it. That's, that's right, it, yeah. Yep. So, uh, so we have we just keep it flat, we don't roll it. And it sits on the top. And that's worked out really well. Yep. You know, yep, we've had yep. that since the beginning of this trip. Our cutting board, we buy those really, really thin ones. Thin plastic. They usually last about two or three years before we put a knife blade through it. You're talking those really thin plastic ones, almost really like really yeah, disposable yeah, so plastic. I, I, yes, I get, a, yes, I get a fairly large one, I cut it in half, and it's the perfect size to go into the tank bag map pocket. So mm. it sits up there. Uh, I'm, trying to think what I'm, yeah. I'm visualizing this because all over the UK at the moment. Yeah, so all the tea and coffee, well, especially the coffee now, we used to just put them in little zip bags. And after a while, the zip bags sometimes taint the, the taste of the coffee. It's just instant coffee because that's, you know, all we carry. we carry. And so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to look on the internet and find some foil lined bags. And we've been using that for the last year. Yeah, year they're fantastic. And that that really keeps it keeps everything uh, nice and fresh. Yeah, foil line. I haven't seen this foil line bag. Is it like a Ziploc? They're silver. They're like a Ziploc. They're silver inside and out. Mm. Uh, you know, we thought when you get the refillable um, coffee, yeah, um, contained sachets, you know, sachets yeah. they're foil lined. And I thought, well, that's what I need to look for. So mm. that's what we do. We, we carry a little bit of powdered milk as well and we carry that in that, mm-hmm. in the foil line. Because once you put it in the Ziplocs, after a while, they just the plastic start tank, to take Even taste though they're the food plastic. grade, we can still taste a little bit of plastic overtune. Yeah. So overtune but no, but this is this is really worked mm-hmm. out really well. So we carry, uh, we bought about half a dozen of those and they seem to last very, very well. The, the Ziploc is very robust. When you seal them up, and they seem to last way better than a normal Ziploc. Um, what else? Are I'm trying to, what else is there? 
there's a windshield for the um, – Oh, yeah, windshield, yeah. For the uh, cooker. Yeah. Oh, we left out a really important item. Oh, we have a toaster. We have a toaster. A toaster. Oh, now, is it a two-slot toaster or a four-slot? No, no, it's not even a pop-up. No, it's a one-slot. <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, – uh, Primus. Primus. Foldable toaster. Foldable toaster. It folds flat. So you can imagine it's probably about three or four mil thick when it's flat, but it all pops out and folds up. And it's just a piece of stainless steel food-grade mesh with some uh, heavier-grade mesh above it, about an inch above it, and you put it on your stove and it browns stale bread. The We use it on a gasoline stove, which to a lot of people thinks, oh, this is quite toxic. But the Coleman burns very, very clean. If you rub your finger around the neck where the burner plate is, there is nothing there. There is no soot. Our and pots it, always come out clean the, on the bottom. It There's leaves no... no marks. I have no idea what how they, they, the, the Coleman does this, but it is – and we only use gasoline, unleaded gasoline in the stove. Sure, because you because you, you can get that from your tank. But why not like for the toaster? I mean, okay, that's that's a bit of luxury. But why not just toast your toast in the pan? Well, we Burning the pan, yeah. yeah, that's true with the thinner this pans. Is just, this is so easy. I mean, we bought this in 1985 when we travelled around Australia. We're actually on the second one because the first one fell apart after 20 years. Oh, 27 terrible. years at last. You can't get yeah, quality like anymore. Quality came and it wouldn't come to the party. It, it's just that the mesh wire uh, started getting holes in it, but Ken's actually found a way to fix that now. He bought some uh, food grade steel. mesh and re, uh, re-laced, it. re-laced it on. Yeah. So, so but the, the, we bought a replacement in the USA and it's Primus, but they're all made in, sorry, I have to say this, it's made in China. And so, the, the, the stainless steel mesh disintegrated within the first 12 months. There was just holes everywhere. Maybe the stove was too hot for it. I have no idea. So I got online and there was you could buy uh, a 30-centimetre by 30-centimetre piece of stainless steel, food grade. So I bought this piece, cut it out, and then I laced it on. I pulled a wire off the stainless steel mesh and I laced it to the thing. It's still sitting there. <laughs> so... Um, so I repaired it. It'll last another 20 years at least. And you can put that on a gas stove as you well. You can put it on a fire. You can put it on a gas stove. You can put it anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm. So It just helps if your bread gets a bit, you know, you've had your bread for a few days and yeah. and it's getting a little bit tough to eat just um, sure. yeah, fresh style yeah, bread. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your so, only yeah. high tech really is the, is those, uh, the, there are those titanium plates and maybe your MSR uh, flipper. Now, the titanium plates, the weight savings on that, I mean, I guess you could, you could carry a spare key. Oh, oh yeah. at least, at yeah. least, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're very, very light. Bit of, bit of overkill there, Jim. Bit of overkill. <laughs> <laughs> but mo- moving back to that, the house pack, that's the other one I want to talk about. So what's in the house pack? That's the 60-liter that's the okay. uh, action pack. So the quality of materials for tents these days has gone ahead in leaps and bounds. A two-man tent uh, 20 years ago uh, – was the same weight, if not heavier, than a three-man tent today. So now we have more space. So we have a three-man tent. It folds up to about the same size as a two-man tent from 20 years ago and weighs about the same. So we have these prerequisites. Our tents have to be freestanding, right, so in case we have really hard surfaces to stand it up in. Um, Under three kilos. Under three kilos. Three kilo at the most. You know. These days, I'm pretty sure you can get a two man for under two. Mm. Sometimes one and a half. 
So the materials are very, very lightweight. I have no idea how robust they are. Three, three kilos, so one, by the way, that's like just over, that's over six pounds. Oh, that's over. No, no it's, it's around a six pound mark. Six pound, okay, So six when, pound. When, I, when I go looking, it's 2.2 pound or a kilo. Right, that's what I was trying to, yeah. Yeah, so it's 6.6 pounds. So if, when I go looking, I go looking, says anything that says six pounds or under, I'm, I'm in, I'm in. So this one's about 2.8. So we have an X-Fed Gemini 3, mm-hmm. which we're really happy with. Uh, it is now, what? Five, yeah, five years, six old, years old, old yeah. so it could be longer, actually. Yeah, it could be. So, you know, there is a new one out, which I'd love, but we can't afford. Oh, no. Too much. <laughs> a new true. model. So, but anyway, so, and then we have- uh, The thinnest. The thinnest Exped mats. Mm-hmm. Uh, with down. With down inside. We used to have Thermarest, the smallest, thinnest, small uh, Thermarest, and um, we were just getting a bit old, and I, I would have- uh, lay on my side a lot and the hips hips would really hurt. So everyone said, oh, you got to get an X-Bed. They're really, really good. So we looked at all the ones they had and they were traveling solo and they had the very thick ones. We thought, oh, they look nice, but they're we so just big. can't. Even though they're, they're fairly compact, they're still too big for us. But then we found out they made a, 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 a model that was, that was smaller and packed up quite small. It's about the same size as the Thermarest we had, the small except they're full length. Mm. And they they're about a couple of inches uh, thick, aren't they? Yes, yes. Now, now so, what's uh, down inside? That they, they had that's added insulation over top of the foam that yes. you would normally have plus the air. This you have the down and the air, of course, in it. Yes. Um, but you can't blow that up with your mouth. You have to pump that up. No, no. no I have exactly a um, oh, what's it called? A snoggle, snoggle. But ba- it's bag. like a little bag. You hook on and you get air in it, and then you roll it up, and the air goes into the bag. Mm, right. The reason why we we switched to the X-Bed, we were camping in Yellowstone in August and it was very, very cold. Uh, And because we had the short therm rest, our jackets, our motorcycle jackets with the back armour was what we put under our feet. Let me tell you, they have no insulative properties at all. (laughs) (laughs) So go ahead, Carol. I was just going to say we had three frosts. frosts. While we were there, and it was just so cold. <laughs> I just want to mention that the reason you can't blow up that pad is because you, when you blow it up, you put moisture in your breath into the pad, which that's, is down in there, and it'll never dry out uh, the down. Correct. And of course, it ruins the the insulation effect of the down. So that's the reason for that pump. That's exactly that's right. right. Yes, right. It, it actually ours come with a little hand pump. Uh, it's just a little bag with a foam section in it and you had to pump it you put it on this it had a little snoggle on the end and then you would pump it up uh and then um another friends they had two bought two of the um x-pen mats and they got the the one with the bag on it and, and they said oh we got two we only need one we'll give you the bag one of the bags and it was really good it makes it a lot quicker yeah a bag full of air two two bags two and a half bags two the, to three bags mat, yeah. yeah the mat's full Mm-hmm. So it's much easier than 200 pumps on this little hand pump. Right. Uh, so And the bag weighs nothing. It's very, very light and packs down very, very small. Yeah. We're sounding like an expert out here, but none of this is sponsored. We've actually bought all this stuff, yeah. and then mainly we- from reports from other people. Yeah. And, and we also have expert pillows. <laughs> oh, wow. You guys, you guys really bought in here, didn't you? <laughs> Oh. Well, we went through so many different pillows, pillows you know, blow up pillows and that, and they'd all go flat. And then everyone said, you know, you need an uh, X-bed pillow. Uh, X-bed pillows are the best. And we thought, really? Why? You know, they're like a little bit kidney shaped on one side. Mm. And I have to I say, have- they are good. We've only got, I think, 
medium one, medium or something like that. Not not the biggest, biggest one, not the biggest or anything. But it's it's actually very very comfortable. I have no idea why they are so good because there is nothing to them, but they do function very well. And we have talked to several other people into buying them. <laughs> so, <laughs> how, how many they, years have you been running the Expat stuff? Uh, mostly about five years. I oh, say okay. five, six years. Yeah, five or six quite years. Yeah. yeah, quite yeah, a, a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. What what else is in the house bag? So the house bag is uh, two um, sleeping bags. bags. Uh, class is negative five, but I would say bordering zero. They're full synthetic, so we can suck them in, throw them in a washing machine and wash them, and they dry fairly quickly. Um, they compact down. They're about 1.2 kilos each, so that's 2.4, and they compact to, um, to about 7 by 10 packs each. So mm-hmm. that's as small as we can get them, and that's tight. Palm Passport. Yeah, Palm Passport. An Australian company. And then in Canada, we were in Whitehorse in the Yukon, and my silk uh, sleeping bag liner died. I put my toe through it and ripped it. Carol stitched it up. It ripped again. I said, I have to get another one. And we found this brand in a camping store in the Yukon in Whitehorse. And it was a synthetic material and they actually zipped together. There was a left and right. And this material is very, very silky, very, very lightweight and feels great on the skin. I cannot for the life of me think of the name of it. And I've tried to find them online and they just cannot find them. Hmm. So, But but they actually don't uh, – they live in our pannier. They live in our pannier. Yeah. It's not Sierra Designs. No, no, no. no, no. I just, it's a I, weird name. I just can't think of the mm. the name of them at the moment. Mm. Well, th- th- that's interesting, just the fact that you, you're saying you use a liner. Why do you use a liner in your sleeping bag? Well, well in, it's easier to wash the liner more often than the uh, sleeping bag. Yeah, and also uh, in summertime, when it's really, really hot, which is our favourite time to camp, we spread one sleeping bag out open on the thing and then we just sleep in our sheets. Mm-hmm. And if we need to, we can pull the other one up over us if it does get a bit cool, cool in the morning or something like that. But otherwise, we just sleep in the sheets and not the, not in the, the sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the liner it saves a lot. I mean, if you if you ever, if you happen to have a dirty camp or something like that, and you happen yeah. to be getting it, it's much easier, like you say, to, to wash that liner. Um, do your sleeping yeah. bags zip together? Yes, they can do. Yes, yeah, they yes. do. Yeah, okay. yeah, they do zip together. So, and then. Um, in the back box is also the uh, first aid kit. Yeah, which is uh, quite robust. Yeah, and then we also have a, a nylon tent, uh, a bike cover, which folds up quite small. Yes. And that's in uh, one side at the back. So those two items roll up about the same size as the sleeping mats. So they're probably about two or three inches round by about 25, 30 centimetres long, maybe 25 centimetres long. So those four are in the back. I really should probably redesign that because the tent is lighter per se than those four items. And I put that down the back of the back box, right, and those four items up the front, which would work better because there will be less weight down the back. Mm. It, you're probably talking maybe a kilo. So the mats weigh about, what, a kilo each? Mm, yeah. like that. They're a kilo each, so that's four. The tent, uh, the bike cover would be lucky to be 500 grams. And the first aid kit, probably a kilo. So that's probably three and a half kilos. You, you mentioned chair though as well. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just um, fold-out stools, aluminium, and they're 500 grams each. Very, very light. No back, just a stool. And because of the shape of our back box, they just sit on top of everything. In the luggage. And, and fit perfectly. And don't forget, Carol made a bag. I made a bag. <laughs> Everyone calls me the bag lady. <laughs> so anything else in there? Uh, you have a little um, Aerostitch naked pump. Oh, that's right. Pump. Yeah, the, the Aerostitch naked pump with no plastic shroud on. So that is a godsend. I think that is the most beautiful bit of kit. It weighs nothing. It's very, very small. It's in a little cloth bag. I have a tyre repair kit in a little Cordura bag made by Carol um, and also a, a very small hammer and cutters in another bag made by Carol. <laughs> <laughs> and these are in the corner pockets of the back box at either end. There's four little fine corner pockets, right? So these items sit in there. There's just a little bit of dead end space. Corner pockets, you mean just space? It's just a space. It's yeah. in the, 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 the shape of the action packer has this little recesses, in, internal recesses. Now, the one on the left up the front contains a cigarette lighter with two USB holes uh, and a switch, external switch. So we can charge items inside the box while we're riding or we can actually put a laptop in there and lock it up and turn it on and charge it from the battery. In a little bag, I also carry a 100-watt inverter right, to convert the 12 to a 19-volt to do the laptop. Right. Well, that's, that's so great. That's, that, that's handy because then you can charge it while you ride, which is when you want to charge it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, I upgraded the electrical system on the bike from a 280-watt to a 450-watt. So I can cope with the addition of all these electrical devices that have encumbered us in the new era of travel. On our first journey, it was replaceable alkaline NICAD batteries. Now it's all, you have to have a plug-in battery and it's all lithium. Mm -hmm. Well, on the first trip, we had no computers, no digital cameras or or GPSs or anything like that. So. You know, we didn't have to worry about Mm. charging anything on the bike. It's a different load distribution. I carry the bulk of the charges uh, for other items. Carol carries the charges for the computers. Mm. So I have charges for the intercom, uh, where in the old days it was hardwired to the bike. What what about tools? Tools, okay. Um, No tools are kept inside the panniers. The panniers are totally for our personal use. The bike has to carry externally all its own repair kit, spare parts and tools. So the toolbox under the seat, the standard fare, is heavily modified. I have many, many changes in that regard, uh, which has taken several years to evolve. Uh, even in the recent, as recent as the USA, I switched to from steel tire levers to alloy tyre levers, which probably saved half a kilo. And I have bead breakers with my Motion Pro kit now, which are just a godsend. I love those things. Um, you had the one with the, the other tyre lever that's got the, 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 the spanner oh, yeah. on the end? The spoon, yeah, the spoon with the, the wheel nut spanner on the end. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, it's just I could probably sit down and talk for about half an hour on tools and how I've modified. <laughs> so are you putting your tools all in different places? Yes. Yes. Okay. So most of the tools are under the seat, right, which is I need the quick access to, so it's, you know, a second to get there. Um, underneath the back box uh, is a little alloy box. I carry, would you believe, a Twin Max, which is a carb balancer. A carb balancer, right. Yeah. Carburetor. Carburetor balancer. Yeah. Vacuum balancer. Yeah, for those who don't know what a carburetor is. <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, actually, it's not. How about a throttle body balancer mm. for fuel injection? How does yes. that work? It'll work on the same same principle. Yeah, except nobody uh, needs to do that, of course. But yeah, no, no one does that these <laughs> days. But you know, I I like the bike running very very sweetly, and it does. Inside that uh, little alloy box uh, is also a fishing tackle box with various compartments with odds and sods, electrical joiners, uh, fuses, that type of stuff, uh, and also. Um, uh, a little plastic Tupperware type container with spare bulbs. So that's all in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a set of brake pads. There you go. That's in that little aloe box. Behind that aloe box, underneath the back box again, is a piece of 50 mil water pipe conduit. Mm-hmm. Inside there, I can carry three oil filters. Uh-huh. which become a little bit difficult to find. So I'm good for about 30,000 kilometres of oil filters. So I calculated I could probably do Africa on what I had with me. But when I got back to Europe, we were going to go down the west and up the east coast, which would have been about 30,000 k's, 40,000 k's. When I got to Europe, I would have to get more oil filters to get us across Asia. So I don't have to spend time hunting down oil filters while I'm traveling. They weigh nothing. They're, I like they, that. Yeah. So uh, they're a really messy thing to do on the old airheads. It's not a spin-on type metal case thing or anything like that. Um, then you have the long tube going down oh, the side yeah. of the, one now, side of the bike. The muffler on the R80 GS is up high, tucked in behind the left-hand pannier. On the right-hand pannier, I had my... Uh, racking designer incorporate a long 90 mil plastic tube, which I stored other bits in there, mostly electronic parts. Um, we also have a cargo net. A cargo net. In which, case we have to strap anything to the back box. Yeah. Uh, tie down straps in case we have to tie the bike down if a breakdown occurs. Just small ones. They not- roll up tight, uh, probably uh, a square of about, uh, what do you reckon, uh, 100 mil by long by about 50, 60 wide. They strap together very, very tightly. Um, I do carry electronic spares because my electronics are non-standard. They are aftermarket and there are only a couple of places around the world I can get them. So I carry the electronic bean can sender and also a control module. I also carry an electronic torque wrench. Wow. It's about the size of about a third of a banana. Mm. So this is when you have to put some sort of extension on to use. Yeah, I have, uh, you put a socket on, right? And you can actually put a, a ratchet spanner or a socket spanner on the other end. So it's a, a female one in and a male the other. Oh, I see. So it, it, it's kind of a, a version of the one that um, 
that that really just uh, is is almost like a, a connector between the two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's got a, it's got a measuring, and it's really really accurate, mm-hmm. and it beats get to the point. So I thought, really, that's quite weird. When I saw this thing, and I was carrying an originally three eight drive torque wrench, which is quite heavy and quite long, it's gone. Right. So you I need carry this, this because lift- it, because it's an R eighty GS. Exactly. You know, um, I have an issue. I used to pull barrel studs. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the block was cheese, and I had many areas, and it did it always did in a remote place where what's a torque wrench? We just tighten them up. Yeah. You know. So now I've I've passed that problem. So it's all over. I've fixed them all up. So um, I still carry the kit with me just in case it does happen, but. It's never. It hasn't happened since the last one was done in Brazil, and that was what 2009. So, but no, other than that, no. It's and then on the crash bar, you have oh more, yeah, crash bar. Each crash bar has another conduit. Yeah, plastic, yeah. plastic um, conduit. Cylinder. Yeah. So on the right hand crash bar, I carry two inner tubes and my tire repair kit. Right, so front and rear t- inner tubes, mm-hmm. and on the left one, there is a little Cordura bag with spare nuts and bolts, right, and then a second one with uh, multiple types of greases. So I carry a multi-purpose grease, I carry a silicon grease, I carry oh air filter oil. I have a uni filter. There's air filter oil, a little bit of a you know the sticky gummy stuff. And then um, also there is a little round container, probably about uh, what would you say, eighty centimeters, eighty millimeters round, eight centimeters, yeah, about that. And inside there are carburetor diaphragms, carburetor overhaul kits, uh, needles and jets and things like that, and some fork seals and a rotor seal. That's it. I think that's all. Yeah. Basically, you've got two bikes on the one with all the tools to change it over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, you know, this stuff, this way, this most of this stuff weighs grams. Mm-hmm. It's very, very light. But if you ha- actually do have a failure, uh, it's very quick to pull up and do it. I can do it on the side of the road if the, I have to. The heaviest part is the tools under the seat. The, 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 but it's in midship, so that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. The, the stuff in the tube, it was, it's very, very light. So, and uh, the the stuff at the back. Um, the t- fishing tackle box is a little bit heavy. I have a gas, uh, what do you call it? Soldering iron. Soldering iron. Like a pen style. Yeah. Like a but butane style one? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, butane, yeah, yeah. So, but that's almost superseded now uh, because you can buy these wire joiners, right, that you hit with a, a cigarette lighter. lighter. Yeah. Yeah, and I haven't tried that yet, but I, I've oh, seen that. Jim, they are fantastic. I've used them a couple of times. I've redesigned my wiring in the UK while I had a bit of downtime. They are fantastic. So I you, love you, them. you slide the you, – you, you strip your wire, you slide it into the connector, and you basically yeah, just heat it up and it melts. Yeah. I mean, if you've if you got a shrink tube, you put that on first. Otherwise, you tape it up. No, it's, well, you don't have to. It's, it's shrink tube in its own right. Oh, it's got the shrink tube on it. It's already on there. Oh, so, And wow. there's three different sizes, you know, and I'm – it's just amazing. I, I, I'm so impressed, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I hope this works. You only used them this year for the I, first time. I only so. used them this year for the first time. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all, all new, and I'm thinking, why am I carrying this soldering iron? Oh, I better hang on to it just in case, you know. Yeah, yeah and it doesn't weigh much. It's a pretty tiny soldering iron if it's the one I'm thinking very, of. Very, very small. Yeah, but, it's a small one. And you do carry a bit of engine oil. Oh, yes, yeah. Now, on the, on the crash bar on those two bits of conduit, 
Uh, I have water bottles, uh, aluminium or stainless steel, whatever they are, 700 mil, not the full litre size one, and I carry transmission oil, which is different to the engine oil, and then on the other side is engine oil. So, so my service. You, you put the oil in, in another container, you mean? Or did I miss yeah, that? Yeah, and they're on uh, bottle carriers, bicycle bottle carriers on top of the round conduit on the bars. I see. So you're opening up your, your oil containers. You're pouring your, your fluid into your can that you have that fits into your holder. In, in, into my water bottles, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're just they're virtually aluminium water bottles. Because right? usually when you do a service, you have some oil left over. I always have oil left over. So as, as well as part of economic, I hate waste, you know. So a service for me is two litres, right, a standard service, which I do every 5,000 Ks. Uh, so I can buy two litres of oil. That one's done. If I do a filter, it takes me 2.3 litres. So I have 700 mil left over of oil, which fits perfectly into that bottle and also covers <laughs> my next service when I do the filter. Mm, right. Uh, now, uh, do you it, strap um, this thing in? Because if it's a bicycle holder, it doesn't hold very well. Yes, yes. It's, uh, no, this, is, this was my other thing that's been carried on for many, many years. Inner tubes cut up into half-inch uh, elastic, elastic bands right. are a godsend. Right. You know, I, I use those to, uh, to hold things on. The only thing is inner tubes are not UV rated. They die. Yeah, I was just going to ask you how long they lasted. I haven't done this before. I've had many people tell me about it before, but uh, I haven't yeah. done it. In really heavy sunlight, they could only last two or three months. Mm. You know, so you'll see them cracking. Sometimes you see them fly off, you know, because they let go and you didn't change it quick enough. But I have a little Ziploc bag um, with them in the lid of the action packer sitting underneath an elastic there. Oh, forgot about the action packer. In the lid, it has ribs, little concave ribs, full length. I carry an aluminium post, which I actually lift the bike up when I'm changing a tire, it balances on this single post. Right. It's your stand. So for doing the rear tire, you stick it in by the frame and, and it holds the bike up while you pull your rear wheel off. Yeah, it's telescopic. Ken, Ken made it. Yeah, I made it. It's just two, two aluminium pipes sliding in and out with holes nice. and a locking hole. And it weighs grams, you know, nice. and, I, and I sit there and I've done work in workshops you know, I so said, I need to do this in the workshop. And the guy stands there and says, do you want a jack? No, 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 this is fine. And they look at it this and say, that's not very stable. It's fine, you know. And it wobbles around on its single leg, you know, but it never falls over. Because you've got little uh, little plastic ends on that grab around the, uh, the the racking of the bike and it's got a little foot on it, a little plastic foot that sits in the sand, you know. Mm-hmm. So it works, works quite well. Um, also, luxury items because we're old. Uh, we have two fold-up umbrellas. Mm. That's the other thing that sits in the back box. That sits in the back box. Um, a couple of rock straps, just in case of emergency, we need to strap something together. And then, uh, but the umbrellas came in very handy. We never carried them before, but in Africa on the first journey in the year two thousand, I got a flat tire in Ethiopia on a dirt track in the middle of nowhere. We just escaped the border from Sudan and we're traveling down and I got a flat tire and it was 5 to 12 in the middle of the day. It was so hot, you know, and I'm down there and it's, the perspiration is running off me and Ethiopians walk everywhere and these guys walk down the road with umbrellas. 
It's so cool yeah. to see. And yeah. I said, oh, we at those at that time we only carried one umbrella. Yeah. So I said, Ken, I'll get the umbrella out and shade you while you change the tire. So it worked really well. So I mean, we now we we, it's, it's we an- actually carry two because they're they're very small umbrellas. Mm. Uh, so you know we can walk around in the rain or we can walk around in the heat or, or yeah. when we're working on the bike or yeah, whatever. Well, it's perfect. So yeah. and uh, good English tradition. You know, you see most Englishmen carrying an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to hear it from an Australian because I've heard that before from from people from Britain, but um, never an Australian, I don't think. Well, maybe. Maybe Brian said it. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, Brian. Yeah. So uh, how about... Um, how, how about clothing tips? Just just quickly to wrap this thing up. Um, tips on packing the clothes themselves. Okay. So uh, everything's lightweight. We have... Uh, I carry three shirts, uh, three socks, three pairs of socks, and uh, th- uh, one pair of long trousers, zip-offs type of thing. Um, and what else is there? Oh, yeah, silk underwear for thermals. Thermal underwear. Thermal. I have merino thermal underwear. Yeah. Uh, we we do have um, electric jackets. So because we can't carry thick anything thick in the to keep us warm in the in the mm. cooler months, so we have an electric jacket, and it looks. Uh, quite nice so when you're off the bike it it just is a jacket it looks quite nice to wear out so uh, we wanted something we could wear both ways we didn't want something that just looked like a liner Mm. Uh, and then we have um, a very light uh, waterproof jacket with a hood yeah so you know just a wind jacket just like a wind jacket so Mm. we're going out we can also put that even over the top of the the um Electric jacket if we're just walking around. Mm. And the uh, the electric jacket has its own uh, zipper bag. It's uh, by a company called Warm and Safe in the US. And we bought them specifically because they were very nice and dressy looking. You could actually wear them out if you're going out, you know, to a bar or something like mm. that. They just look like a normal jacket. They're, they're full of wires and there's a controller in the pocket and everything like that. So, but uh, – and – very functional. So, and then uh, we have silk liner gloves. They're a godsend. Well, we have silk liner gloves, but then we also have uh, liners, electric liners for our gloves. Yes. So we can plug those in. Rather than take the thick winter gloves, mm-hmm. uh, we just have the electric liners that go in our summer gloves. Yeah. So, and they work really well. And then, uh, what else? And so we pack everything. Like I said, Ken packs all his clothing. Fits into the one little um, stuff sack, except for the electric jacket. Electric jacket has, has its own, yeah. Uh, but all these other clothing fits into one mm. little um, compression bag. Now our bike clothes are not waterproof. We have a separate suit for our wet weather gear, which includes a separate jacket and pants, uh, and they are also rolled up. With the elastics, well, we used to use elastics. Now we're using Velcro, uh, uh, Velcro straps. Velcro straps to pull them tight for, cl- for these clothing. And they go in another bag that was manufactured by the Deval <laughs> part. <laughs> and so the wet weather gear and electric jacket sits in the lid of our panniers. So we have um, Jesse luggage. luggage. Mm-hmm. And it has a little clip that holds things in the lid. Yeah. So they, they're, they're for quick. Access. Access. And then all our other luggage, our other clothing fits in, sits the, in the, the other part. We uh, also carry uh, walking shoes. Walking shoes, yeah. And little 
flip floppy sandals, you know, for the showers. Yeah, or thongy things type like things. That. Yeah. Uh, what do you call them over there? Jandals. Uh, no. Uh, flip flops, I think mainly. Flip flops, flip flops. Yeah. yeah, that type of stuff. You know, the just rubberized stuff that uh, yeah. keeps your foot off the floor. Yeah, I have Columbia sandals, but um, um, Ken just has flip flops. I'm trying to visualize what we else we have in the pannier now. Um, so. I just have a. I also carry a little bit of washing powder, um, a, a multi-purpose plug. Mm-hmm. If we have to do anything bigger than the what we can fit in the little Oatly folder bag, yes. If we're doing like our washing our jackets or our motorcycle jackets or something like that, which you do have to do after you've been in Africa for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really uh, travel towel. Oh yeah, yeah, travel towel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my travel towel goes into my clothing bag and is compressed with the rest of my clothes. So everything's small, uh, lightweight, quick drying. Mm. Because, you know, most of the time we're hand washing, mm. unless we're staying at someone's place and they, they – uh, We have access to a machine. Access to a washing mm. machine. So um, the uh, – I, I used to use those uh, toweling uh, squares you can buy in multiple packs at like, uh, like three mi- or four – microfiber. Mi- microfiber towels, you know. Anyway, I was using one of those for several months, you know, as a towel. I said, oh, this works very well. And then it started smelling. And uh. I'm thinking – I will wash this, you know. Well, you washed it regularly, but yeah, it still um, it still smelled. And I said, "Oh, there's something wrong here." So we go to a camping store, and I said, "Oh, I was using one of these." He says, "You need to have the ones that are antibacterial, impregnated with silver." Mm. And this is what a towel has. It's got this antibacterial thing with they're impregnated with silver. Yeah, and they're a little tougher too. They they last longer, yeah. like the one you buy from the camping store. Yeah. So, but, um, you know, I said, oh, okay. So I buy the towels, you know, and this thing doesn't stink at all, you know. Mm. So, uh, but it packs up very, very small. Yeah. So So that's, uh, I think that's probably, Mm, I'm trying to think what else is there. Covered, covered a lot. Yeah. Um, Well, what what about, the one thing that that pops in my mind is what about water? How are you carrying your water? Um, that is something that, we carry two insulated bottles with water that sit on top of the pannier, right? So it was a little bit – I'd like to carry more, but we, we can't. We're just too heavy. But in Mongolia, we had to. There is no water. Well, and there's not the little little villages everywhere there. So we also have MSR dromedary um, bladders. bladders. Six litre. So we had two, I think, in, two, of those. two in Africa, uh, two in um, Mongolia. Mongolia. So, so the great thing about those is you can roll them up when they're empty and stuff them in your pack. And otherwise, exactly. it basically, it's, it's a bag that you fill up with water. Yeah, that's exactly. right. And it, they're as tough as boots. Yeah, is it know? Cordura on the outside? That's, that's it. That's, that's right. it. That's yes. the one. Yeah, yes. that's the one. So, and they used to sit on top of the pannier. So you can imagine the back end of the bike, mm. six litres of water either side as well, and then we're just riding sand. It's quite exciting. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, there was nowhere else to carry them. You know, Ken did try once in Africa putting, hanging. Putting, hanging them off the tank bag, and he said that the water just moved around too much. It you hit know? me in the knee all the time. Yeah. It was oh, just yeah. dis- right. disconcerting. Mm. So I said it has to go behind me. So – the volume of weight that we have up front does counteract the amount of weight down the back. To a degree. To a degree, mm-hmm. right? Because we have 34 litres of gasoline between our legs when it's full. 
Right. The massive tank. So, and then we put the tank bag on top. It is heavy. I would say in the vicinity of 10 or 12 kilos, right? So, which is counteracting the back. It is not to the point where the BMW on the center stand with nothing on it rocks backwards and forwards on the center stand. It is not like that. I have a rear wheel bias because of the weight. Yeah. So there's nothing I can do about that. Plus that is circumvented as soon as Carol gets on the bike. We have a rear wheel bias because of the weight over the back wheel. Yeah. I mean, there's no no way around it. We are heavy. Yeah. Uh, I could tell you exactly how heavy, but. uh, I'm curious now. How heavy is it? (laughs) We actually rode over some trucking scales in the States. Uh, I don't remember what year it was. It's in Texas. Oh, I don't. It doesn't matter what year. He's so. <laughs> <laughs> and the tank was near full, right? But both of us were on the bike. Both of us on the bike. Most people don't weigh themselves on the bike. Oh, the bike is so-and-so. I said, but what about with you and your clothing? Well, I only weigh, you know, 78 kilos. With your bike, helmet, and boots on, well, I've never jumped on the scales with that on. Add it all up and see how far you get. It's scary stuff. So I think we were probably in the vicinity of Grant. I think Grant may have been a bit, a little bit heavier than us, Grant Johnson, but uh, it was 480 kilos. 480 kilos. What, what's the maximum gross vehicle weight for that bike? I'll bet you it's not 480 I'm kilos. Sure it's nowhere near that. <laughs> and I think about the tires that are way beyond that, right? So I don't think any bike, two up, carrying what we need to live with off-road could stay under that kind of weight. I mean, uh, if you dispense with the camping gear and you hoteled it, yeah, you could knock probably 10 kilos off, you know. so And a lot of people don't cook as well. No, that's exactly right. So there's 20 kilos gone. Mm -hmm. But you're still with two up with all your gear. I have no idea. I've never jumped on the scales with all my bike gear on, right, and my helmet and my bike boots. We'll have to do that next time we can. Yeah, that's what we can. Yeah. So because I have off-road boots, right, so Mm -hmm. they're very um, and my bike gear, you removing the armor out of your gear and then putting it back in, the difference is huge. Plus, I have so many pockets and they are full. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is, uh, plus all the stuff you put in your pockets, all those extra little that's things you stuff in the last minute. Yeah, yeah, so no one jumps on the scales with no. their gear on, you know? So, I mean, we try to pair away the weight, but yeah. just, you you know, you come to, okay, can we go away, get, get, get away without using this sort of thing, one thing or another thing? Yeah. And you think, well, we use it all the time. I mean, hmm. it's very, very difficult. I mean, we are heavy and we just have to – we, we have to pick the roads we, we're going to take. We can't do all the hard roads. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, certain parts of West Africa we would have loved to have gone to, but no, we, we, we couldn't. Mm. So you just got to be realistic about mm. what you can do and what you can't do. Mm. But saying that, we did cross Mongolia, which yeah. a lot of people said, oh, you can't do that. You can't mm. cross Mongolia, you know. But we did. We just potter along. We don't try and – We're not breaking speed limits. Yeah. We mm-hmm. just, the, if, we, if I have to get off and walk a little section, I get off and walk, you know, mm-hmm. if it's going to make it easier for Ken in certain areas. Yeah. Um, so it was dry season, which was great. The, the river crossings were quite shallow. So we actually, Carol walked one 
And I said, you know what, these aren't that deep. So we rode the rest of them together. So that was that was not an issue. I guess when you get uh, Carol to walk it, you get her to walk it first to check the depth. Yes, exactly. So uh, we well, I've I've never actually had to do that because no, no, <laughs> somebody somebody else did it before us. Before, as Carol was pr- taking her boots off, ready to do it. Oh, I see. We, we were in uh, a place called Ulangong in Mongolia and rain was forecast and it rained that night. So we were doing a, a bit of a road to get to our next uh, point and we were 20 kilometres from town and it was fairly overcast. There was rain on the mountains to our right and the table drain beside the dirt track was literally lapping the road and I'm thinking, this is not a good sign. And then we hit the river, you know, and whether it was a river in the dry, I don't know, but it was across the road. And it was a, probably about a good, probably 80 metres of water, a sheet of water. Mm. And there were three separate sections with islands in the middle. And we could, I was gauging whether I could get to the island and get through it. And I could gauge one and I'd probably get through the second, but the furthest one, I couldn't quite make out whether it was too deep. And Carol says, would you like me to walk it? And I said, yes. So she got off the bike and was unzipping her shoes and the rains hit us. It started raining quite heavy. And I said, you know what? We're not doing this because we could get through these, right? Well, this one and we don't know what the next next one's one's going to be be like. like. And we had no more than two and a half days of food with us and we had a full quota of water, but we just didn't know. And I said, I don't want a rescue mission happening out here. We don't need to do this. We all wait this out and see if something. We uh, in that hour we were on that little bit of road. We saw one other vehicle, and it was uh, a local vehicle. Well, I know we we've run a long time here. Thank you very much, Ken, Carol. I, I really appreciate your time and, and all the great information you've given us. So, um, no, thank you very much, Jim. Oh yeah, yeah, it's cool. So we're avid listeners. So beware. We're always listening. Okay. Okay. Catch you later, Jim. Thank you. Cheers. That was Ken and Carol Duval from their temporary home in Brisbane, Australia, fresh out of quarantine while they wait to get back on their motorcycle, back on the road. Now, as I mentioned, we will have a link to the episode that we did four years ago with Ken and Carol in the show notes on our website. You can also follow them on Facebook. We'll have a link to their Facebook account as well in the show notes. That's all on adventureriderradio.com. If you have any trouble finding the episode in particular, just go to the search box and search for Ken or Carol or Ken and Carol. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps 
up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who works hard in the background here, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. If you have a story idea, maybe you've done a trip yourself, maybe you have an idea of, of something that we could talk about on the show, we'd love to hear from you. And we have something set up on the website for you to pitch us the story. Just go to the website, look at the links. Um, there is a pitch us a story link in there, and uh, just fill out the information. We'd, we'd love to hear it. Anyway, if you're not supporting us on Patreon or or supporting the show somehow, we really need your support. So please drop by the website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.